want to uh, be a little too honest with you guys this morning and allow you a, a slight glimpse into the extreme levels of my dorkiness. Um, so, so in seminary, I was in my second year of seminary, and uh, one of the things that actually drove me to seminary, and this is an unusual thing, one of the things that actually drove me to pursue seminary in the first place wasn't so much because I wanted to be here doing this. The thing that actually caused me to pursue seminary was out of my love of Greek. Um, I, I had, uh, I know, it's weird. It was, it was weird. Um, the other students just stared at me cross-eyed like, why are you here? Um, I, I, I love the Greek language. I, um, I, I began studying it in college just on my own and uh, just had a desire to be able to read the New Testament in its original languages and eventually be able to, uh, to read the Old Testament similarly. And so that drove me to seminary. So, so I went. I'd already begun teaching myself, so I was already ahead of a lot of the other students at that point in time, not because there was anything so great going on up here, but just because I had devoted more time up to that point. Um, went through the first year, I did well, I stood out. I, I was definitely one of the better students. Uh, my professor liked me, I got my pat on the head, it was good, right? And then, and then second year came around, and all of a sudden there was a new student, right? So, so mind you, I'm in my early 20s at this point in time. I'm well t- too old to let this bother me, and yet it did. There was a new student who came al- along who was better at Greek than I was. He was better. It was so frustrating. The professor would ask these questions in class, and I would sit there saying, ah, wait, I think I remember seeing that in the textbook somewhere, and he would just, he was like on it. He just knew, and it was amazing. And again, I told you, this is a confession, right? This is my extreme levels of dorkiness. So it bothered me. As I watched this student continue to excel through through our semester together in Greek, um, he was consistently better than I was, and I didn't like him right? I mean, he was just all smug with all of his right answers. So, uh, so finally, I was like, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, this can't be something that actually bothers me. Like, I refuse to let this bother me. So finally, I, I made the decision that I would actually, because I hadn't had a, a real conversation with him up to this point in time. So I, I made the decision that I would pull him aside, and, and I, would, I would actually meet him, and I would, I would try to encourage him about how good he was and really try to provide, you know, just, I, I felt like maybe that would potentially kill the, uh, the envy in my heart. So, so I did that after class one day. I was like, hey, I just, I just wanted to introduce myself. I hadn't really met yet. I just wanted to let you know, like, you're really good at this. Like, do you, do you have a background in Greek? Have you studied it before? Did you study it in your undergraduate? To which he was like, no, I, I didn't. You know, I actually just, I, I decided to come to seminary just last year. And I, just, I studied it for a couple months in the summer and read through the book. And, and then I tested out of the first year Greek that all the students killed themselves to take, that you just wasted your time taking last year. And now I'm just better than everyone. He, um, he didn't actually say it quite like that, but that was the way it landed for sure. And I was like, awesome. I still don't like you. <laughs> And to this day, I still don't like him. Um, we, we actually did become friends, and he is still better than I am. Um, you know, e- envy is a funny thing, right? Envy is a funny thing. It doesn't take much. It can even take something as silly as that to arouse this kind of envy and this jealousy in our hearts. As we look at our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that talks about, that begins kind of at the crux of this envy and the jealousy that we see arise in the situation of the disciples. And we'll see actually how God 
seeks to put that to death by putting Jesus first in all things because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is even better than being the better Greek student. So as we, uh, as we launch into our passage this, mo- this morning, we'll be looking at John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. And we'll look at this simple declaration that Jesus is better, and we'll look at how that kind of gets explained throughout. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much this morning. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for all the ways that you bless us. Father, you are so good. Lord, I pray that as we look into this passage this morning, that we would see that we would see the beauty and the majesty of your Son with greater clarity, Father, and that we might, um, Father, that we might boldly declare that truly Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything, Father. There is nothing that compares. Lord, teach our hearts to truly believe that. Teach our, teach our hearts to truly long to know him more. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So as we begin this morning, we pick back up in Jesus' southern ministry. It's kind of a unique time in that the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, Luke, and, John, or Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, they actually don't record this section of Jesus' ministry. So, so, so we get a unique glimpse as we go through the Gospel of John what, about what this time period looked like. Jesus has finished his discussion with Nicodemus, and we had the opportunity, uh, the opportunity to explore one of the most well-known passages in Scripture, right? John 3.16. We just looked at that last week. And then, so we enter into our passage this morning, and we see a scene change. Ironically, as we look through the passage this morning, Jesus won't actually be front and center for most of this. However, regardless, Jesus is still going to be at the center of the passage. Let's, uh, let's read through the passage together. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In verses 22 to 24, then, we see these two groups, these two groups of disciples colliding in the Judean wilderness, right? At the, uh, at the river of Jordan. 
Both groups are in the process of baptizing people. It's funny, uh, the passage here indicates that Jesus is the one baptizing. However, John actually clarifies later in chapter 4, verse 2, that it wasn't genuinely Jesus, but it was actually Jesus' disciples who were doing the baptizing. So that's a nice little clarification as we're working through. But either way, we see these two groups of disciples then who are at work baptizing, and this sets the stage for attention that's going to follow. Verse 25 goes on to tell us that a debate takes place. There's a debate, a debate between John's disciples and, and, and a, a Jewish figure. Now, it's interesting. I think, I think he's just referred to as a Jewish figure because I think as the debate unfolds, this individual takes a particularly distinctive Jewish um, understanding of purification principles. Presumably, this Jewish figure is identified this way because they're representative of the standard view of that day. Now, when it talks about purification, purification is a ceremonial washing that provided superficial cleansing to a person or an object. It was a very standard practice um, throughout the Old Testament. In fact, different ceremonial washings, different purification um, things are actually commanded by the Old Testament law. So it was a good thing but it was always intended to be understood as being superficial. It served rather to highlight and to remind the people that they were sinful and God was holy, that they were distinct. They were sinful and God was holy. And so there needed to be cleansing to come into the, pre- in, to come into the presence of God. God told his people throughout the Old Testament that the washings didn't actually take away sin. Only God could do that. But due to the hardness of human heart and due to our idolatrous nature, people continue to elevate the practice of these washings to a position that they were never meant to hold, to do something that they were never actually meant to do. That's probably what's being debated here in our passage between John's disciples and this Jew. That's probably kind of the background as they bring into it, especially looking at John's baptism which again was a baptism to represent repentance versus this kind of Jewish ceremonial idea of washings. So the disciples then, they have this debate, and then they go back to John the Baptist. They go back to him with this debate. However, notice in the passage, it takes a slight turn in verse 26. This debate somehow brings the conversation back around to more specifically Jesus' baptism and John's baptism seemingly putting those two at odds with one another. Now, there wasn't anything at odds. The the two baptisms were very similar. But still, at some point in the conversation, it provoked in the disciples' mind that there might be a tension there. It's possible that the train of thought was something along the lines of, if the Messiah has come, and John the Baptist himself has said that the Messiah has come, why is it that John the Baptist is still baptizing who is the better baptism? Which, which individual should we go to to receive this baptism? It's possible it wins something like that, but honestly, we just don't know. The text doesn't provide us enough to understand exactly how the debate transitioned to pitting Jesus against John. What we do know is that as the disciples heard that, they were provoked to go and ask this question to John the Baptist saying, help us to understand this. All are going to him. Now, we know that not all people were going to Jesus. There were still people who were going to John the Baptist. So we see, we see some hyperbole. We see some exaggeration happening here, which seems to indicate that they're bothered. 
they're bothered. There's a jealousy that's beginning is beginning to rise in John the disciples, uh, in John's disciples, and so they want their rabbi to answer his question because they want him to still be significant, right? They want they want him to get priority. They want him to get the honor and the glory that he deserves, and consequently, since they're his students, they're his disciples. They also want glory. However, John has different priorities from his disciples. John makes a number of uh, points kind of in response to his disciples in verses 27 to 30. He wants to make crystal clear that there is no competition at all between he and Jesus. John knows better than to try to steal Jesus' glory. If you're familiar with the story of Nebuchadnezzar, he tried to take God's glory and God smote him. Herod Agrippa in Acts, Herod Agrippa tried to take God's glory and so God took his life right? Lucifer tried to get God's glory, and he was condemned for all eternity. This is what happens to those who try to steal the glory of God. Isaiah 42, 8, God does not share his glory with another. It is his. He is jealous to protect his glory. And John the Baptist knows better, and he wants everyone to know that Jesus is better in every possible respect. So John responds first in verse 27 that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That, that note, from heaven, that's, a, that's another way of saying unless it comes to him down from God. God chose this portion for John the Baptist. God, who is sovereign over all things, who is providentially in control of all things, has decided this route. He's decided this is John's portion. And John is committed to rejoicing in that, to trusting in God. God's providence and his plan are a warm blanket on a snowy Minnesota day to God's children, right? It doesn't mean that we'll always like his plan. We certainly won't. But it does mean that we can always trust his plan. Romans 8.28 reminds us that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even when we can't see how it's necessarily good. We can trust that it's good. And not only does he work all things for our good, but all things ultimately work for his glory and for his end, which as children of God, that's our highest priority, that God would get the glory in all things so we can take confidence, we can rest in this reality. When life is framed this way, when everything is seen through the lens of God's sovereign plan, we are freed to accept what he, choose to, what he chooses to give. Just like we see in Job chapter 1, verse 21, in the wake of horrible things, all the horrible things that happened to Job, Job responds in the midst of it by saying, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Because Job trusted in God's plan. He knew God's plan was good, even when it didn't feel good. That's the kind of thinking that doesn't allow for jealousy. That's where John's mind goes to, an absolute radical confidence in God and what God is working. You might be thinking, okay, that's fine and all, but we're talking about Jesus here, right? This is John's reaction to Jesus. We're not talking about John's reaction to, to the new guy at work. 
We're not talking about John's reaction to that Greek student who's quite exceptional at Greek for some weird reason. We're not talking about the, the new woman on the board or the mom with those really advanced children or, or the person who is just so popular and everyone loves him or her or, or the person who you fill in the blank. No, this kind of perspective, John's kind of perspective frees us up from envy over anything and anyone so that we can rejoice even in the student who's better than us, even in the person who's more popular than us, even in the person who excels in all of these areas when we don't. This kind of perspective frees us up for that kind of radical trust. John is trusting God to do what he deems best. This is the first part of John's response. This is the first part of his, of his response. The second part comes in verses 28 to 29. There's an emphasis on, uh, on, on John the Baptist and Jesus' roles here. Jesus is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He's the one that's been promised throughout the Old Testament. John has never minced words on this. John's been clear from the outset. John, on the other hand, is simply the one who was sent before the Messiah. He's Isaiah's voice crying out in the wilderness. He's Malachi's messenger who's coming to prepare the way. This is John's role, which means John's role isn't primarily about being the center of attention. John goes on to kind of illustrate this point by talking about a wedding. Specifically, he refers to himself as the friend of the groom. So the friend of the groom in the ancient world was something kind of similar to what we think of when we think of the best man, but it's someone with, with far more responsibility than your typical best man. This is someone who is responsible for everything that's happening. Everything comes back to this friend of the groom, but obviously they are never meant to be the center. I, um, I, I officiated a wedding just this past weekend, and I can tell you that as the back doors opened and as the bride began to march down the aisle with her father, and as the groom was standing next to me beginning to cry over the joy that he was experiencing, I can tell you there was no competition between the bride and the groom and the best man who was standing there. Nobody was looking at the best man. He was a great best man. He did a phenomenal job. No one cared about the best man at that moment. That's John the Baptist, and he's happy to be in that situation. Nobody cares about him at that point. All eyes are fixed on the bride and the groom, and there is no competition. In fact, Jesus' superiority is so evident that it leads John to the conclusion in verse 30. This is a radical conclusion, but he states, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must be greater and I must become less. He must become larger while I become smaller. There are a number of ways it can be translated, but at root, it's a bold, unfettered realization of who Christ is. And it's a jarring statement. It should hit us. It should broadside us. And it should continue to linger in the back of our minds as we meditate on it. What does it mean for Jesus to increase? Well, what it doesn't mean is that John the Baptist is going to do anything to actually make Jesus better or to make Jesus more glorious or more magnificent. We can't do that, right? We don't have anything in our power to make Jesus better. There is no lack in Jesus. So then how does someone with no lack increase? This isn't really about Christ changing at all. It's about a change in John and his ministry. For Jesus to increase is for John and his ministry to show everyone how big 
Jesus really is. To show that Jesus is the ultimate priority. It's to magnify Jesus. Now, there are two ways we can magnify something, right? With a microscope, with a microscope, we magnify things by taking things that are really small, really small and blowing them up and making them larger. That's not the type of magnification that we're talking about. Rather, we're talking about the magnification that happens with a telescope where we take something really big and we bring it near so we can see it more clearly. That's the sort of magnification John the Baptist is going to be doing with his ministry. He's not making Jesus any larger. He's bringing something that already is so incredibly large, and he's going to bring it near to the people who he's ministering to. And this is one of my favorite parts. This is one of my favorite parts of this passage because we go on to see part of John the, John the Baptist's motivations here. He does it not because of a duty. He does it not because it's just the right thing to do. He does it not just because it's good. Rather, he does it for the joy. He's excited to magnify Christ because of the joy that awaits him in that. Notice in verse 29, it's not just that the friend, the, uh, the, the best man, rejoices. But rather, the ESV has, he rejoices greatly. It is, in the NIV, it's he is full of joy. Right? This is an enthusiastic, overwhelming, superlative sort of joy. So John can say, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The therefore connecting this statement to, uh, to, to his role of stepping aside, of lessening. His act of getting out of the way for Jesus' glory to shine through. Right? This is his joy. He doesn't want to take any credit. He wants Jesus to get all of the credit. He wants it to be evident that Jesus is better than anything that he has to offer. And so his ministry is a ministry of getting out of the way and enjoying the joy that comes along with that. Are you driven by the same insatiable desire for joy at getting out of the way? Or are you still trying to make sure people are impressed with you? Are you, are you more concerned about what people think about you? Is that the concern that orients your life? Or is the desire to make much of Christ and make much of him? So we see that Jesus is better. And there's all sorts of joy wrapped in this. But then the question comes, why? Why? Why, why is there so much joy in this? And is this even appropriate, right? So we've gotten to see John overwhelmed but there, there needs to be more clarification. Why is this so appropriate for Jesus to be at the center, for Jesus to be better? Well, our passage continues and it explains it. We have an explanation for Jesus being better. We reach verse 31 and we take notice of a change. If you're following along in your ESV, you'll notice that, uh, that verse 30 ended with closing quotation marks, as do most recent translations. Now, it's interesting because quotation marks aren't actually in the original Greek. The original Greek had no way of marking when a, uh, when a quote was actually ending. So that is, that is a decision, that is an interpretive decision made by the translators, and I think it's a good one. While John the Baptist has been doing the speaking from verses 27 to 30, here we see a transition to the narrator. We see a translation to a different John, John the Apostle, right? It's a little confusing, right? We have two Johns at work here, John the Baptist and John the Apostle. Um, John the Apostle interrupts into the narrative. I, I kind of think of it as like when I'm telling a story to my kids, 
And as I'm going along, every once in a while, I kind of break from the narrative to kind of catch them up and kind of summarize and make sure they're following along still. That's kind of what John the, that's kind of what John the Apostle is doing here. He's giving us a break in the narrative because he wants to summarize and catch us up on, okay, here's what's really happening here. So we catch this break, and, uh, and, and he explains why Jesus is better. You see, this is crucial because if Jesus was merely a man, if Jesus was merely a human, then everything that John the, uh, everything that John the Baptist just said about him would have been idolatrous. For Jesus to have been better, for, to, for John the Baptist to make his ministry revolve around Jesus and magnifying him, if Jesus was only a man, this would be idolatry. This would be a horrendous thing. I think that's why John the Apostle interrupts here. John the Apostle wants to explain this a little bit more. Because it wasn't idolatrous. He has good reasons for doing it. So John the Apostle interrupts to explain for us why it's so important that Jesus being recognized as being greater and as being our ultimate good. Verse 31. John the Apostle describes that Jesus is the one who came down from heaven. He's describing the incarnation here, but his, his focus really isn't on the incarnation at all. His focus is really on Jesus' origin. Where did Jesus ultimately come from? As opposed to others who are on this earth, including John the Baptist himself, Jesus' origin is actually from heaven above with the Father, as we saw back in John chapter 1. And because of his origin, because of where he's from, he is superior to all things. Um, And because he's from the side of the Father, Father, verses 32 to 33, Jesus is the perfect revelation. He is the perfect witness. He is the perfect description of the Father. Now, this is interesting because John the Baptist is often recognized as being the witness, right? He's often described as being the witness who's supposed to come and testify about the things that are going to happen. But here he's proclaiming, here John the Apostle is proclaiming there's actually a better witness. There's actually a better witness because this is one who has been at the side of the Father in all eternity. Jesus perfectly shows us the character of the Father, and yet his witness is rejected. Those who receive the testimony, the witness about Christ with the Father, in verse 33, they set their seal, right? They set their seal to the truth that God is true. What does this mean to set a seal to something? What what are we talking about here? What does it mean for if we trust in him, we are setting a seal? Well, a seal in the ancient world, it would have been an imprint made in wax. Um, oftentimes, you would have used a signet ring or something like that. You would, you would stamp it, and that would indicate your, kind of, uh, your testimony that this is true, that this is it's validation, it's verification that the thing in here actually is legitimate. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. Therefore, for us to set a seal to God's truth means that we accept it and we embrace it. It's kind of like giving a personal endorsement. Yes, I verify in my experience, this is true. Okay? And we do it in such a way as to provide credibility for others that God is truthful. John said it similarly in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Um, it's kind of similar when I when I originally came on staff here at Lakes Free Church. I I'd never had sweet potato pie, right? This was a new concept to me. But I, I quickly discovered after only a few months here that, that that our pastor Jason 
absolutely loves sweet potato pie. And I'd never had it before, so I didn't, know, so I didn't really know what to expect. It's kind of like, I don't know, should sweet potato be in a pie? Like, I'm used to kind of fruit pies. It just doesn't seem quite right in my mind. But, um, However, at the very first staff meeting where a sweet potato was brought in, I sat back and I watched Pastor Jason begin to devour this sweet potato pie. And, and just by watching his personal enjoyment of the sweet potato pie, he was setting his seal to it. He was providing a personal endorsement that this is worth eating. This is good. I finally mustered up the courage to go try the sweet potato pie, and then I quickly found out Pastor Jason had eaten it all. So I, I, I continue to trust that it's good. I, I don't think to this day I've had a chance to try it myself. Just playing. I've had it. It is indeed good. That's what, that's what he's talking about. That's what John is talking about when he says we set our seal on something. We're providing personal endorsement that this is indeed true. And the apostle goes on to describe how Jesus can perfectly reveal the Father to the world in verses 34 to, verses 34 to 35. Why is it that he can be the perfect representation of the Father? Not only is Jesus the perfect representative of the Father, but he utters the Father's words perfectly. The word of God speaks God's words. Though the Father and the Son are distinct, they are singular in will and essence. The Son speaks and does all that the Father speaks and does. The perfect unity, then, of the Father and the Son is not lost when the Son becomes incarnate. The Son merely takes on humanity so that the Son perfectly displays the Father to the world. If you want to know the heart of God, you look at the Son If you want to know the power of God, you look to the Son. If you want to know the wisdom of God, you look to the Son. If you want to know how to have a relationship with the Father, you look to the Son. Right? He is at the crux of it all. Verse 34 goes on to tell us that He gives, and the He there is the Father. The Father gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, The Spirit, the third person of our Trinitarian God, who is distinct from the Father and the Son, but still completely one in essence in this passage. He is given from the Father to the Son in a super abundant, infinite, eternal procession. It is the greatest gift. It is the greatest thing that could ever happen. And it is something that happens in all eternity past between the members of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son so much with a love that exceeds even our wildest understandings. We can't begin to fathom the love in in the Trinity because it is a perfect love. It is a love that is greater than anything we have ever known. It is a love that we will lean into for all of eternity and we will still not even be able to comprehend it. That is the love that the Father has for the Son a love that exceeds our wildest expectations. So the persons of the Trinity coexist all eternity, enjoying perfect communion with one another. So the Son is fit to be the perfect revelation of the Father to us. Verse 36, we see that the one who responds to the Son in rejection, right? the one who rejects the Son is condemned. Their sin and their guilt remain on them, and all they have to look forward to is an eternity of God's wrath. Being poured out. Those, however, who believe in the Son are ushered into eternal life, which is essentially relationship with the triune God. Those who have put their trust in Him get to experience that love poured out, that overwhelming love. And we spend an eternity immersed in that, enjoying that 
It is this eternal Trinitarian state of things that legitimates Jesus then to be the perfect representative of God. It's because of this that John the Baptist can declare boldly that Jesus is better. He is truly better and worthy of all honor and all glory and to be magnified in all that the Baptist is doing because of his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, because of who he has been for all of eternity, because he is the perfect representative. He should be at the center. He is truly better than all things. And all of this, all of this should overwhelm us with a joy. Right? All of us should be overwhelmed by the magnificence, by the superlative excellence of this. This should be our joy. This should be our feast. This should be our delight. This should be our motivation. Jesus Christ is all-consuming. And when you have this priority, when you have this vision of Christ in your life, all other priorities change. It's like when you, so it's like when you find out you're having your first child, right? Everything kind of change, <laughs> changes around that. All of a sudden, some things that seemed so important before, they, they lose their luster. While other things that maybe didn't seem quite so important before, all of a sudden become quite important. And so all of a sudden, everything in your house changes and revolves around this news that there's a baby coming. And all of a sudden, your favorite toys are put away, and you don't even know how to lift the toilet lid anymore because it's baby-proofed, and you don't know what that means, right? <laughs> True story. Everything in life, everything in life changes when Christ is at the center, and rightfully so, because he is better. This is, this is only a hint of what happens when Christ intersects your life, like an atomic bomb that blows up in your life and leaves everything leveled so that things can be rebuilt. Everything is demolished, but everything comes back together in him. This is the effect of the supremacy of Christ in a person's life. When we enter into relationship with God in Christ, everything is changed. And we are left with one very radical ideal. One very radical ideal. Every, everything else hinges on this. This becomes our plumb line. That he must increase and we must decrease. Let's pray. Father, you are good. God, your might, your excellence, your beauty, your majesty, it's all made evident in your Son who has come to be the perfect representation of you to show us your great, unhindered, infinite love that is far beyond our wildest expectations. Father, I pray that we would continue to lean into that truth, Lord, that we would continue to be overwhelmed, Father, and that our lives would be a reflection of decreasing father to make much of your son that we would truly evidence in our lives that he is better than everything father we pray this through your son and by your spirit amen this morning our benediction comes out of the book of jude please rise verses 24 and 25 now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.